0: This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. I've always admired people who create something from nothing. In David's case, that something is world-renowned, free, and of real lasting benefit to society as a whole, making him a true Australian treasure and a privilege to talk to. So, David, welcome to Five of My Life, mate. Thank you, Nigel. You're going to take us on a a journey through the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, but we're going to start with your film, as we traditionally do, and you've chosen one of my all-time favourites, the unbearable Lightness of Being, 1988. Tell us about that, mate. Beautiful, tragic. It's a film adaptation of Milan Kundera's
1: novel, and I recommend that anyone sees the movie first before reading the novel. And why is that? Because the novel is even better than the movie. It's sensational, isn't it? And Kundera poses the question of whether life is light or whether it's heavy. Do you get weighed down by life and all its woes and troubles or do you get lifted up by it? And, of course, life keeps throwing its slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And where do you fit on that spectrum, mate, light or heavy? Today I'm veering towards light. I'm opposite you, Nigel. (laughs) Um, But it, it takes you all over the place. I do have times when it feels really heavy. I don't think anyone gets through life without that, and hopefully people have those moments of, of lightness, if not lots lots of those moments. But the, where the, the book and the film was so brilliant is there's these different themes and stories that explore this duality of life, and the, the central theme is the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, crashing one of the great popular movements of our time, my time by three years only, um, when the Prague Spring, communism or socialism with a human face, as it was called, attempted to reform the the dark years of the 50s and 60s of, of communism um, in, behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, the tanks of every Warsaw Pact nation except, I think, Yugoslavia rolled in. Um, the troops themselves weren't told until they crossed the Czechoslovak borders. I actually bumped into a taxi driver who commanded a Russian tank on that invasion. He's uh, still not happy that he was
0: a participant in that. And the hopes and dreams of a nation were crushed. So how long did the Prague Spring last before the tanks went in? It was it was like a, a good half a year, wasn't it? Oh, it was really on a roll for, for, for half a year. That's spring of
1: '68 of but it had been happening for a couple of years with with more and more reforms Alexander Dubček the Slovak Czechoslovak president had really started to foster those and embrace them um, and suddenly people could say what they wanted yeah and this was a a, a movement that came through the arts the films of the time the, the 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 novels the the plays in particular the plays and the and the films of the time and a real flowering of creativity. And the, I actually, as a result of this, lived in Prague f- from 1993 to 1995.
0: Tell us when it was, the country was liberated. It, it went 68, the tanks rolled in, and then it was it 89? 89, 89
1: right? a couple of weeks after the Berlin Wall came down.
0: And 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 uh, Milan Kundra uh, set the novel just for in 68. For 68, right. So the, you're in the country a couple of years after they've got their freedom again. It was extraordinary. It was living history. Literally every month there would be some change.
1: Another building would be closed to be renovated. I had the the gumption to put on the first art exhibition I organised called The World in Praha, which was a photographic exhibition of people living in Prague, the centre of uh, a Europe healing itself after the 20th century. In a building called Obetsni Dum.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: And yeah. other Australians in excess filmed their kick, many of their kick videos in Obetsni Dum and in Prague. This is the the opera house. This is the equivalent of the Sydney Opera House in in Prague. That's, I suppose, also an example of how downtrodden and forlorn the Czech people were at the time that Some young bunk from Australia could just turn up and
0: say, hey, can I put an art exhibition in here? Yeah. Isn't there a story about how that
1: building was built? Absolutely. It was built by public subscription. Right. Obetsidum literally means the people's house. So unlike, say, the Sydney Opera House, where it was built by lottery tickets, people literally would write, yep, there's my five krona, my 20 krona, my $5, my $20. And that's a wonderful example of a very civic-minded people. And in a not in substantial way that actually very much influenced my thinking to create sculpture by the sea as an exhibition staged by the people of Sydney for the people of Sydney and a lot of that time in prague going back to the novels and films that i read very much influenced how i started to think about life
0: so it's amazing when people uh, i mean and i i include you in this list don't want to embarrass you but people who do things that uh, add to the overall uh, richness of society for free, forever and for future generations. So it could be something like, I don't know, the High Line in New York. It could be poems on the underground in, in London. It could be Sculptures by the Sea in, in Sydney or it could be that building in in Prague where people get together and, and you know, it's not just a rapacious profit motive. You go, I'm going to do something that's going to make the world, you know, existence slightly nicer for humanity. You go, wow, with those... That those people, are, I, I think, and those events should be celebrated and supported, but I imagine it hasn't been smooth <laughs> smooth sailing for you over the last couple of decades. How, how would you, uh, on a scale of naught to 10, 10 being very easy, how would you uh, describe getting Sculptures by the Sea up and running? Getting it up and running was very easy. Right. Keeping it
1: going from 1999 onwards, so it started in 97. Then I had a, an extraordinary Run of good luck, um, including winning the Lucky Door Prize at Tropfest when I was stony broke. I won $16,000 of computers about a week into organising the first Sculpture by the Sea.
0: How? What, what did you end you, you just put
1: your name oh, down. Literally, and, and you, you get the Lucky Door Prize out of 100,000 people that are there. And I sold those for $6,000 that cash flowed the first Sculpture by the Sea. Then Andrea Stretton commissioned me to do Sculpture by the Sea around Australia in 1998 in five locations for the Olympic Arts Festival. So all that sort of good luck was great. And then 1999 hit and it was like, we don't have the Olympic money. Not that it was huge. I earned $14,000 for 18 months' work, but it was an extraordinary 18 months putting on five shows around Australia. And then it was really hard. As I try to quip, it's been the joy of my life and the albatross around my neck. And and it's
0: something, I mean, I I just adore it, but there's... When I talk to people who do remarkable things, sometimes the kickback and opposition they get is surprisingly from the people in the epicentre of the thing that they're doing and helping. So so you you weren't necessarily carried shoulder high by the art community and applauded. Oh, by serious sculptors, yes. Um,
1: With a little bit of an exception that could the show just always be serious? And it was (laughs) like, well... If we're going to make this work, we've got to get sponsors in. We've got to get, you know, we, we can't. We need the ice cream van. We need the ice cream van, exactly. Although I think serious sculptors would have applauded that one. Um, yeah, the arts bureaucrats hated it from minute one. Doors but were shut. Why? Why? You just said it, Nigel. It's the disruptor. You know, right. Before the term disruptor was invented, you know, anyone who's the new kid on the block, you're showing up the existing kids and, um, and in this instance, what back in 1997-98 was a very small public sector uh, pool of funds for the visual arts were controlled and still are totally controlled by a self-appointed, self-perpetuating group. Yeah. Um, that, those pool of funds were substantially increased by the Howard government in about 2001. So the visual arts aren't the, the paupers that they they were but the visual arts are not the rich cousin either. Sure. Um, and so these these funds are, are very much controlled by a, a small number of people. And their mantra before Sculpture by the Sea arrived, their mantra to the politicians was, we can't engage the public because you don't give us enough money to engage the public. The reality was they didn't want to engage the public. They just wanted to engage their own poetry, yep. you know, their own like-minded thinking group. But Sculpture by the Sea... Showed how it could be done, and then suddenly the Sydney Biennale came out from under its, you know, its 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 cover, and hey, wow, the public might like the visual arts. Why don't we try go to Cockatoo Island? You yeah. know, all these things started to happen, um, and uh, the visual arts have have really taken on a much more prominent place in
0: in Australian life as a result. Now we're going to move from the 80s to the 60s. Now your film is one of those rare things that is a great book and a great film. Now, The Magus by John Fowles, 1965, is regarded by many respectable people as an absolute classic, one of the top 100 books ever published. Have you seen the film of it? I have not seen the film of it, and I don't think I want to. Have you heard the Woody Allen quote? No, I haven't heard the Woody Allen quote. Woody Allen, Allen, as we all know, uh, hasn't had a trouble-free life, and he was asked a couple of years ago... uh, if you could press a button, you know what would you do again? And and the interviewer expecting New York Times, him just mention all the things in his private life, and he said, I wouldn't change a thing, apart from I wouldn't watch the Magus. <laughs> and who who was the lead in it again? Was it Michael Caine? Was Michael Caine? And Michael Caine said it's the worst film. And, and and trust me, he's done a few. It was the worst. The film is so confusing. But the great thing is, you didn't choose it as a film. You chose it as a book on The Five of My Life. So uh, tell us about the book and tell us why you chose it. Oh, it's an extraordinary book. It's, it's
1: a rite of passage book that is so demeaned by that phrase, rite of passage, because you have someone who is educated, a little bit self-pitying, but has so much hope for his life, for the world. He, he sees through the, the pettiness and shallowness of the world and can't work out how to rise above it and still live. This is the main character in the The book. The main character in the book. And there's this line that I'll paraphrase relatively early on when he graduates from Oxford. I had a third-class degree and a first-class illusion that I was a poet. Suitably equipped to fail, I set out upon the world.
0: (laughs) And are you seeing parallels between yourself and this character? Prior to doing anything
1: of substance... The parallels were considerable. and But though, the, this is the great thing about these extraordinary novels. If you read them and you, you embrace them, you don't just read them and go, well, that was pretty heavy. You read them and you think, okay, I'm going to set that up as a mirror for myself. I'm going to look at myself in that mirror. Yes, I can still have a lot of fun. Yes, I can still, you know, waste every cent that I ever get or whatever. But am I going to literally live my life like this? Am I not going to achieve anything?
0: Um, I love it when people talk about books that affected their entire lives. Is it? But you read that in Greece where it's largely set. So it, it's like a double, double impact. That's always a,
1: a lovely thing to, to do. I was in Greece on the way to London to do a postgraduate master's degree in law, knowing I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but this was a great way to avoid a year in the workforce and to think and those sort of bits of paper just mean that when you go to do something perhaps frivolous like organising a nude ocean swim in (laughs) Sydney Harbour, that people will go, well, actually, you have the ability to pull off a nude ocean swim in Sydney (laughs) Harbour. And it's been very helpful. Um, Sadly, along the way, my legal skills have been required not just for the upside of managing Sculpture by the Sea but for the downside as well.
0: And this is people trying to sue you or...? No, not sue, try to take
1: advantage of us us or the artists. There was a major national photography competition a few years ago where the winning photograph was taken at Sculpture by the Sea and this
0: mega... Featuring a work. Yeah,
1: yeah. And this mega multinational company rang us up and said, wow, you guys are going to get so much free publicity... (laughs) And we said, that's great, we'd really love to work with you on that. The only thing is the artist has the copyright in that image and there's the co- section of the Copyright Act that says that. Oh, um, but can't we just talk about this? Yeah, we can. And, well, they weren't happy when we meant talk yeah. properly, not that they could just tell us what was going to happen.
0: Appealing to a, a higher, noble vision of humanity, we're going to move on to your uh, song. We're going to go to the 70s, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Rock opera, um, Jesus Christ Superstar. And, and surprisingly to me, you've chosen the overture to Jesus Christ. Tell me uh, about that and your story behind it. I think it's the best part of the rock
1: opera. Just those opening notes are so powerful. They set the scene brilliantly. The the drama, the tension, it evoked everything that was on that stage of that massive drama in world history of Christ being crucified, his own people in the form of Herod saying, yeah, get away, do away with him. I'm not going to rescue him. Um, Pilate going, really? You want me to kill one of your own when I'm prepared to let him go? Judas betraying him. Peter denying him. That's
0: all set in that overture. Wow, you, you get that from the music. It's just wonderful. Do you, you, you think it just is appropriate for all that? Yeah. And i if it wasn't,
1: I don't think Superstar would have succeeded like it had. And I was lucky enough to see it as a seven-year-old. And I can remember sitting there just looking up at the stage thinking, I want to do this. <laughs> this is my life.
0: I want to be in the theatre. So when you were watching it, when you say I want to do that, you want to be the, the, the rock star at the no, front? No, I want to be the producer. The produ- wow, at a young age, that's what you... I, I want to be in control
1: of this. Yeah. And um, one of my favourite... Jokes from that time was one of my best friends, you know, you're having a sleepover and you say, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? I said, I don't know. What do you think I'm going to do? He says, oh, you're going to be the guy on the cruise ships who organizes all the events.
0: <laughs> ah, ah.
1: So at seven, I actually tried to produce Jesus Christ Superstar. Big cool. Okay. God, got everyone over to my place from school. We were standing around and I said, okay, so who wants to be Jesus? And, of course, boys being boys, at that age, no one wants to be the good guy. Right. So, already we've got a problem. And then my brain leaps ahead to hang on, we're an all boys school. Who the heck's going to be Mary? So, I just parked that for a moment. And then my mum years later reminded me that I apparently said, Now, by the way, it's my show and I'm going to be Judas. Everyone wanted to be Judas, almost caused a riot. So, I quickly deflected that. So, okay, who wants to be Herod? And there was one guy who was perfect for Herod. So, I'm like, Yep, you're Herod. And that was almost the end of it. I just didn't have the wherewithal to, to go beyond that. But I had already worked out where the stage was going to be and the seating in the back garden and all of that. But years later, I bumped into Harry Miller who was notorious for not letting even Loretto Curabilli do Superstar. He, like, he would never let anyone. Well, he owned the rights? He owned the rights for Australia and I think New Zealand. And he confessed that sometimes when he told people he they weren't allowed to do the show, the rights had lapsed and he didn't actually have that right. <laughs> But he was determined that no-one would water down right.
0: this, this gem. How was the uh, production you put on at seven? i oh, I'd ended
1: at the first rehearsal. Oh, right. <laughs> we <laughs> couldn't get past that. <laughs> I couldn't work out who was going to be who. Coma Island,
0: Fiji is the place that you have chosen on 5 of My Life. And I, uh, unfortunately, have never been there, but I have Google imaged it in uh, research and in your honour. Holy moly. It's like a cartoon Thomas the Tank Engine desert island with with fringed by sand, palm trees. It looks like you could walk around it in 10 minutes. Tell me about it. It is just a piece of heaven
1: Um, that arguably should be a little bit more sublime than it is. It's just 20 minutes off the mainland of Fiji in the Mamanuva Island groups just near Nandi Airport. And it is exactly what you say. It's a coral atoll and it has a neighbouring island called uh, in marketing terms Treasure and almost to create a, a triangle, a little sandbar that for whatever reason never grows that coconut that lands on it. So you've got these three exquisite little drops of sand that have come out of the reefs of Fiji. And as a child, we went to Fiji quite often. My uh, mother's family had a a business there and my father had grown up in Fiji till the age of six when he was evacuated at the start of the war in the Pacific. And the family connection actually goes back four generations to my great-grandfather who ran away to sea at the age of 10 he didn't like his stepmother. And he, through probably good luck and good hard work, rose to be a ship captain and he sailed primarily the Pacific. And that's where our family's love of Fiji began. And we used to go there once or twice a year because my cousins lived in Fiji because my uncle and aunt ran the Fiji fruit business that we had at the time. And we used to go to beachcomber as it was then called Thai, they marketed it under its Fijian name, and it was a Robinson Crusoe type of island back then. Now it's, it's a bit of a party island and quite a lot of fun, but I think probably a mixture between the two is probably a, a nicer place to be. And after I'd been running Sculpture by the Sea for about seven years, I just needed a break. I was totally burnt out, seriously overweight. And... Um, I went to Beachcomber and it was just like returning home. I hadn't been there since I was 14 or so. So I'd missed the party island thing, yeah. 14 to 37. <laughs> I was the one person who should have realised what that island could have delivered to my 20s. But anyway, I saw it and I just went, this is the place in the world to organise an ocean swim.
0: Are you mad? So you, 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 At a time of your life where you need a break, you're running a stressful event and you think the way I'm going to have a rest is organising... A stressful event. Yeah,
1: Nigel, thank, Explain you. Yourself. thank you for
0: pointing that out. What I should have said <laughs> is
1: I'm going to come to Fiji every year and I'm going to swim between Thai and, Beachcom-
0: Thai and Treasure, Beachcomber and Treasure, because that's the perfect one-kilometre swim. So you t- t- tell me, you organised a proper swim with Olympic champions, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, we had the winners of 20 Olympic gold medals from Australia, New Zealand and America participate over nine years. Um, John Conrads and Shane Gould, Murray Rose... New Zealand's greatest ever swimmer, Daniel Loder, Natalie Coghlan, the most meddled American female swimmer. Ocean swimming, as you know, is an extraordinary sport and it's, it's like climbing a mountain. You see that mountain, you want to walk up it. You see that distance and you swim it. And for people on the east coast of Australia, the idea of doing ocean swim is a relay, sort of anathema. It's like me in that water. But the, the team spirit, the camaraderie that happens in a relay over these long distances, like almost no one can swim 18 kilometers. Good swimmers, very good swimmers, can basically get to 10 kilometers without blinking. But anything beyond that, the body starts to crack up. Yeah. 18 is the equivalent of swimming, of like doing sort of two marathons as a runner. Um, and it was um, something that was very special, but along the way, what was quite daunting and confusing was that in Fiji, like in almost every developing country around the world, accidental drowning is one of the greatest causes of death. Right. So here you are, you've got an island nation, and we suddenly realised there were no, almost no public swimming pools. So you've got swimming pools everywhere, but they're attached to resorts. You've got staff at these islands and at these resorts who can't swim, but they're meant to be there looking after people. And so we started to teach Fijians, uh how to swim. And interestingly in Australia now, we are getting more drownings each year because um, so many people who are coming to Australia are coming from these countries who, um, where this swimming is not a, a natural part of their lives.
0: We're going to come to your fifth choice, which I'm... Um, on- oftentimes is my favourite of my guests' choices. Um, You've chosen a wooden shoehorn from Japan. Explain yourself, man.
1: You quite rightly pointed out the reckless stupidity which is behind organising the Fiji swims. I didn't have the time nor the money for it and I should have just taken myself off on little holidays to, to swim. Well, when I decided that I needed to do something else, but this did overlap with the Fiji swims for a couple of years. Shortly after meeting my wife, we went on our honeymoon and she said, you know, these extraordinary places that you're taking me to that I no one has heard of, you know, these private sculpture collections and whatnot in New Zealand, you should organize tours. And I said, oh, I have no time for that. And she said, but we've got to do it. I said, if you organize it, I'll help. Well, I ended up doing it. And we did the first one to Denmark for Sculpture by the Sea, which happened in Denmark in 2009, thanks to Crown Prince Frederick and his Mary Donaldson, now Crown Princess Mary, um, having one of their first dates at Sculpture by the Sea back in 2000. And Frederick saying, We've got to do this in Denmark. And so we did this art, food, and wine tour to Denmark. And suddenly people wanted to come on these tours. And my wife had lived in Kyoto for a year when she also quit being a lawyer. She's now an architect. And Kyoto is the most extraordinary city. We went on a research trip there and we had this wonderful day wandering around Kyoto. And as we were walking along the Philosopher's Walk, I've just spotted this little shop and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And we wandered up there and there was this tiny, beautiful, little wooden shoehorn, um, only three or so inches long. And it just whenever I I use that, it reminds me of my wife. And you need shoehorns in Japan because you're constantly taking your shoes on and off as you go in and out of temples, in and out of restaurants, in and out of everything. And um, one of the very serious tips that we give our guests on our Japan tours is don't wear anything other than slip-on shoes because you get so fed up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tying up and untying your shoelaces.
0: I have to go back to the Danish nation owes you a, a debt of gratitude.
1: Sculpture by the Sea is a great first date. From the guy's point of view, it's free. It makes you look better than you are. If the date's not going anywhere, oh, got to run. Yeah. If the date's progressing nicely, there's bars and restaurants and cafes everywhere to extend to. And I'm not sure who out of Crown Prince Frederick or Crown Princess Mary invited whom to Sculpture by the Sea, but at Crown Prince Frederick's opening speech for Sculpture by the Sea in Aarhus in 2009, he said that as he was taking his first steps around Sculpture by the Sea in Sydney, he was taking his first steps with the future Queen of Denmark. And the Danish crowd, your R was multiplied by a thousand <laughs> million. And the Australians were like, what was such a big deal about that? And the Danes said, royalty just don't ever tell you that sure. sort of stuff. Yeah. Vulnerable and And intimate. it was um yeah, it was it was very special to have a, a tiny little part in that. But I didn't own the slip in. That's a lovely
0: story. So so on that theme, I, I'd like to ask you about um being a dad um sort of later than, than than some others. So some people have kids, you know, before 20, and you go, oh, that's a bit earlier than others, and some people have them after 50, oh, that's a bit later than others. Uh, you, you be in the in the latter group, is how did you find that, having been, you know, living the life, the amazing life that you've lived, and then you've got a, a squawking thing that's dependent upon you? I'm loving it. Of course it's hard. Like anyone who's been lucky
1: enough to be a parent, I can't imagine life without a son. It is an extraordinary joy and privilege if I'd had a child in my 30s with all the struggles of Sculpture by the Sea when I was earning, I mean, I earned an average of $20,000 a year for the first seven years of Sculpture by the Sea. I bring a child into that, so I've been lucky to have a child later in life where now I have at least
0: a modestly reasonable salary and it's fantastic. Coming to... My sixth traditional final question. Unlike your five choices, which I have here in advance so I can research them, I never know what my guest is going to say for the sixth question, which uh, makes it all the more exciting for me. Who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? I'm sorry to say this,
1: but if you can achieve this, it will be brilliant, okay? But the man to whom the world owes the greatest debt of gratitude is Mikhail Gorbachev.
0: Isn't he in the ground? No, he's not. Is he not? How
1: old is he? He's fairly old now, but he's much maligned in Russia. He changed the course of human history. He absolutely did. No one in the history of the world has voluntarily laid down their position of preeminence, their weapons that the Soviet Union did. They didn't surrender per se, but they made the current world possible the world without the Cold War. Gorbachev saw the Soviet Union as a system was inherently flawed. Interestingly, in 1969, he went to Prague and in his autobiography, he says that he could not understand how hated he was. People weren't telling him that he was hated, but he could just see it in their eyes. And when he was the head of the Soviet Union he welcomed Alexander Dubček, the Czechoslovakian leader at the time of the Prague Spring. He welcomed Dubček back into the Kremlin in 1990 or so. And Dubček is walking down the corridor to meet Gorbachev and there's just tears coming down his face. And Gorbachev suddenly realises that the last time Dubček was in that room, he probably didn't think he was going to live to see the sun come up again.
0: So, wow, you, you didn't have to deliver, mate, with your last answer, because it, it's, it's always surprising, but I, I I had no idea that was where you were going to go. So thank you. That's that's really a really thoughtful, interesting challenge that I willingly take on. We will get on the phone to the Kremlin. Do try and reach out to him. He's a very special person. David Handley, thank you so much for sharing your choices on Five My Life.
1: Thank you, Nigel.
0: Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicolish.